1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, welcome to New Books in Military History, part of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Blood. I'm a historian of military culture and war. I hold a PhD and have published two books on German history examining war, security, and the Holocaust. Today, my guest is Dr. Spencer Jones from Wolverhampton University. He's a senior lecturer in the Department of Great War Studies, Spencer is also president of the Battlefield Guilds Trust. He has published widely and today we'll be discussing his latest book, The Darkest Year, The British Army on the Western Front, 1917, published by Helium Books in 2022, and which includes a foreword by Professor Gary Sheffield. Spencer has published a fascinating book, which includes the most recent British historical research about the Great War. There is a balance of contributions from senior scholars, students and experts, and is grounded in advanced research. There are 16 chapters covering a fascinating array of topics, including civil-military relations, the general staff, the core commands, the grand battles, the intimate violence of raiding, and how new, new technology was micromanaged. So, Spencer, welcome. Can I ask you to give listeners a brief description of your book, perhaps mentioning your interest in the Great War and what this book represents in your body of work.
1: Well thank you Philip and thank you for inviting me onto the show. it would be my pleasure to, to say a little bit more about The Darkest Year. The Darkest Year is actually the latest book in a series of books which i have been editing since 2013 beginning with a book called stemming the tide officers and leadership in the british expeditionary force 1914 moving through courage without glory which looked at 1915 and at all costs which looked at 1916 i didn't originally create the this series with the intention it would be a series it was originally going to be a one off book on 1914 and the premise of it was to combine two of my favourite military history books, which are actually John Terrain's Mons, The Retreat from Victory, which is a book that really interested me in the early First World War, and John Keegan's edited book, Churchill's Generals, which I always found a fascinating, potted history of command. And The original, Stemming the Tide, was actually a series of command biographies of the officer corps of the British Army in 1914, and subsequent books of... of changed a little and now we look at the british army in a particular year on the western front and the darkest year is the latest in this series they length of the books very little from 15 chapters uh, for most of them 20 chapters for at all costs about 1916 and now 16 um, for the darkest year about 1917 the the premise behind them if, if i was to give you a mission statement about these books it's to try and look at the British Army on the Western Front in both breadth and depth and not only in that in that sense but also to offer a wide range of voices about the First World War and try and draw in a mixture of well-established scholars, scholars who are still at the PhD stage, scholars who may have produced very good MAs and decided to take it no further. Where possible try and bring in some different different viewpoints. So, for example, in the 1917 volume, we have an Australian historian, Melanie Hampton, and we have two American historians, Michael Cicero and Alexander Falbo, who offer slightly different perspectives than you might find in British historiography. And the idea is that you could pick up this this volume, or indeed any of the other volumes that look at an individual year, and if you read it cover to cover, you would come away with a, a broad understanding of the problems that faced the British Army in that particular year. There's studies of battles, there's studies of technical aspects, there's studies of... Um, very low level concepts such as very low level training. Charles Fair's chapter in The Darkest Year covers officer cadet battalions and Michael of Cicero's covers point blank trench raiding with relatively small forces right, right the way up to Big technical questions, such as Simon Shepherd's chapter about how artillery functions at Third Deep, which is complex, nuanced, but also extremely insightful, or Tim Gell's study of British and French tanks in comparison in nineteen seventeen, and then taking it further, looking at political the political dimensions, such as my own chapter about David Lloyd George and John Spencer's chapter about the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, William Robertson, and. I structure the chapters so that you start at the strategic level and then move through the period roughly chronologically. So the opening chapters look at what is the strategic background to the British Army in 1917, and then we move through aspects of the British Army, from intelligence gathering to military cohesion, onwards through battle studies, uh, and finishing actually with Tim Gale's chapter on tanks, who, of course of what back going to be a more important weapon in 1918 than they were in 17. So I like to think that if you are a scholar, you will find something in this book that is new to you, that is challenging to you. And if you're a general reader, just looking to learn more about 1917, you can pick it up, read it cover to cover, and you'll come away with a nuanced understanding that's informed by what I might modestly say is some of the most exciting research on the subject you'll find in, in particularly British academia.
0: Well, I think... <clears throat> I think the exciting thing for me was it appeared to be radical military history. Um, and I say that in a sense that it wasn't just we're, we're doing this because we, we need to write about the Passchendaele or or the generals or the politicians. It was the fact that um, scholars, the writers, had taken a subject down to... as far much detail as possible and I think what was helping that radical process in my mind was how Helion had designed a book which is really good for an academic to read with the footnotes with the diagrams with the photographs with compact text it's actually a delight to read just as a book never mind the contents, and the contents are, are really quite advanced. I mean, how, how, did, how did you get to this? Is, was that a purpose, design, or did that just come about by chance?
1: It's a great question, and the answer is it's been designed this way, and it's difficult for me to speak highly enough of, of, of working with Helion. A relationship with Helion actually began with Stemming the Tide, the first book in the series, back in 2013. And Helion, of course, a small military history publisher, made an agreement with the University of Wolverhampton in 2013 to produce what was called the Wolverhampton Military Studies Series, which was a, a initially a, a collaboration between Wolverhampton and and Helion that also expanded to include other authors. It was. It was teased, actually, as being a university of press by the back door. It's not quite that, though, because Helian's design approach and, indeed, its business model is to produce very high quality but relatively affordable volumes that are, that are trying to cross the bridge between very serious academic history and something that the general reader of military history might enjoy. And working with Hellion has been really interesting from my own perspective, and I love the phrase you used, an act of radical military history, because academia can sometimes become trapped in the publish or perish mindset, whereby academic progress, and, and certainly when you're a younger scholar, simply securing a job is so dependent on publishing something, and that can has led to a little bit of a warped academic market in terms of publication we tend to associate this with scientific publishing but it's true of humanities publishing too where a small number of journals very important. But in terms of publishing books, with a handful of exceptions, I am thinking particularly for some of the American off-presses and, and some book series in the UK, for the most part, you are looking to publish a, a minority interest book that will retail at a price that is only affordable by a library. And the production quality of the book is extraordinarily poor. I don't I, I don't speak from my own personal experience, but experience of colleagues who've worked with, in some cases, quite prestigious university names have had books returned to them where there's clearly been no love and attention put into them editorially. The idea is that the profit margin because the profit margin on the publication is very high the profit margin alone will make it profitable for the publisher and there's almost an expectation that no one will read this we're only publishing it because you need it to get a job and i think that's in, one i think that's a very nihilistic approach to, to publication But it's one that Hellion really sought to try and avoid. And Hellion's owner, Duncan Rogers, is a military history buff himself, a a, a real renaissance man in terms of his own studies, and a collector of books and a lover of books, a true bibliophile. And it was he who's really pushed the idea that you can have a luxury military history book. So it's hardcover in its first print run, a battle painting has been sourced, um, color maps are provided, which are, are, is very unusual in in um, academia. Pictures are provided. Uh, widespread use of pictures, which can often be a barrier in military history, but crucially, it's not it's not just a picture book. And so, when we were originally creating the the series, he was insistent that there has to be footnotes so that real scholars can follow these when i say real scholars that doesn't mean that you can't be a scholar if you're not an academic but people who are really interested in seeing where where the evidence has come from and want to chase those it's immediately in front of you you don't need to flick to the back but equally if you're a general reader you don't need to look at the footnotes you can read the pages and and just go through it as a as a history and so hellion's input onto this has, has really been terrific and i can't speak highly enough of it and it, it is almost an act of radical history because the original proposal was to try and fill a gap in the market something that was not being filled that bridge between um, popular military history which is often not very academically cutting edge not necessarily a criticism just a comment um, often tends to recycle the same material over and over again but he's appealing well packaged well presented that's on one side, and then you've got very hardcore military history on the other that's published far beyond the price range of anyone else. Hellion wanted to try and place a book into the middle ground that could appeal to both. And I might modestly say, I think they've achieved it, not merely in, in terms of the finished product, but also in giving me and the other authors a degree of freedom to publish works that aren't necessarily um, the type that you'd be able to pitch to and I don't really want to name publishers, but, you know, certain university of presses wouldn't accept these. In fact, on this and and the first time I became aware of the idea that this this might be a radical approach was when I received some criticism on Twitter from a, a very established military historian who singled out the Hellion series as saying, well, they're, they're all they're wonderful and, and lovely books, but that they wouldn't be counted properly in a a, a research excellence framework exercise. And I thought, well, that tells me something. Um, he was very—I have to say—he he didn't realize I'd been. Well, he didn't tag me in this discussion. Somebody else tagged me in it, and um, I, you know, I found that quite enlightening. And my own experiences of just talking to other military historians about the books is I, I get some lovely comments and people say it's a lovely volume isn't it how you know it's really wonderful does it count towards your research excellence framework i can actually say it does it does uh, and for listeners who might not be familiar with that the research excellence framework the ref it's an audit system that all uk universities are subject to whereby every uh, uk academic has to submit some research outputs that's books articles and so on and, and they are assessed by a uh, an independent Body. Uh, they never tell you what you score which is quite a fascinatingly obtuse star chamber like system uh, and then depending on how your department as a whole scores a certain amount of funding is assigned to you so it's an important exercise and for many years it was assumed even though the, the regulations make quite clear that this is not the case it was assumed that the panel that reviewed you would give you a score based on who you published with so if you published with a university of oxford university of cambridge you'd automatically score higher even if the quality of your work was was Potentially low. There's still a widespread belief that's the case, even though the rest regulations make clear it's not. But I think with with the Helium books, when I initially started these, there was some a certain degree of resistance in Wolverhampton saying, "Well, you know, oh, it's a new publisher. We're not so sure." Whereas now that uh, we've the, the radicals have sort of won the field a little bit and now I, I get people constantly emailing me saying can I be in the next volume and so on and I think that's a lovely tribute over four volumes uh, and indeed nearly 10 years now of, of work with them that we've we've gone from we've gone through that process so there's a, somebody once told me that all new ideas go through three processes uh, first there's ridicule secondly there's ignorance and third they're accepted as being self-evident and I'm not quite sure it's the self-evident Point yet, but we're getting there, I think, Philip.
0: Well, there is another group, which is those who are hated. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I don't yeah. fall into
1: that. <laughs> too
0: much about my books at this. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I'd like to draw you back, um, and that's to just mention the, f- just highlight a bit more, the fact that you've included students. Now, I I, I found that remarkable because back in the day when I was doing a PhD, it was a real struggle to get published in anything, never mind books in academic journals. Here, you've got the top scholars side by side with experts and students. Can you just elaborate a bit more on that? Because I think that's quite fascinating, really.
1: I absolutely can. I'm glad you brought it up. Because when I was starting out some 10 years ago, I had exactly the same problem. That getting getting your foot into anything was really difficult and it created this uh, almost a vicious circle whereby as a as a young scholar or what's called an ECR an early career researcher there was terrific pressure upon you to publish but actually getting your foot in the door was really really difficult and some of the I actually have a framed rejection letter from one journal that's a masterpiece in in demolishing something I was submitting about 10 years ago and it, it's difficult I can smile about it now but but at the time it's it's discouraging it's difficult and it's got a real economic consequence as well because if you can't publish you can't secure a post in the uk and also it doesn't give you a lot of experience in writing for publication which is of course we both know is a little different for writing purely for for research and so when the series started i was really keen to try and include students and not merely PhD students, but also students who completed a master's level qualifications or even in the process of doing them. And I was lucky because at the time when this started, I was teaching on the University of Birmingham's First World War studies MA. Later it became, I moved to the University of Wolverhampton and teach the same MA there. And That MA recruited such a wonderful broad base of students, as well as people who'd come straight from undergraduate studies. It also included people who were sometimes in quite high-powered careers who were doing it as a form of interest, or people who'd retired and were looking to revisit a subject that had fascinated them uh, all their lives. And so we had this very rich student body with different ages, experiences, and outlooks. And I became really really struck by the quality of their work and their willingness to have or challenge ideas to put new ideas forward, the depth of their research and although when I first started including the first students were included in stemming the tie I know some older colleagues really raised their eyebrows and I had one or two little comments little backhanded comments such as I bet you spent a long time editing those I can tell you that 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 they didn't require any more editing than some of the more senior scholars, and that's not to say these were bad papers. It's just that you know they obviously need a little bit of editing to fit the the, the volume, and I was just struck by the richness of it, and. The desire to include this, because otherwise there's a risk that we just constantly recycle the same old ideas. When there's so much exciting research being done, perhaps under the surface, a little bit under the radar, and what better way to get it out than to give students the opportunity to, to publish? And one of the the, the biggest uh, benefits for me, and something I, I take a lot of pride in, is a number of students who first published in the in the volumes have gone on to do more and in some cases start academic careers. So to just take two names from, actually I'll take three names in fact from the 1917 volume. We have John Spencer who's recently completed his PhD on Henry Wilson in the First World War. He first published with me in Stemming the Tide. We have Andy Locke, who's currently undertaking a PhD. He was formerly one of my MA students, and this is also his first academic publication. And one of my favourite stories is Alexander Falbo, who's an American historian educated to MA level. And he actually was able to use the publication of his chapter in this volume to gain entry to a PhD programme late last year. And I think that's that's really wonderful. It's, it's exceeded my expectations and that people can use this as a as a stepping stone for themselves professionally and in terms of historical research and also produce some exciting new research for a a wide readership is I I, dare, I don't want to sound too much like an evangelical, Philip, but but I think the sh- I would love to see more of this. I'd love to see more opportunity because as established scholars, we have a wide range of avenues in which we can publish, but as younger one, younger scholars, ECRs, the pressures are extremely heavy and the opportunity to, to alleviate those pressures are, are low. So if I can contribute anything in that respect, I'm delighted. And in fact, I had an email last year from somebody, uh, a student who's currently... Starting their PhD, and they said, "Oh, you don't know me, but I'm a, a fan of your work. I've followed your books, and I know that you'll give a hearing to younger scholars. And I'd like to propose a chapter to you." And, and to me, that that's a wonderful position to be in. And um, you know, I'm very, very grateful for the young scholars who've contributed their time and effort. And I look forward to, to including many more of their contributions. To be perfectly honest,
0: superb. So let's move on, and we'll have a talk now about 1917, because I think there's some interesting things that the listeners would like to hear. So um, I would say 1917 was a busy year. America declared war as Imperial Russia withdrew. Uh, Military history is focused on developments in the war, like your good book, while global and general history is traditionally focused on upon making and breaking the nations. Is it challenging to teach students the gravity of such powerful social changes in the age of social media?
1: It really can be. It can be, particularly with undergraduates, because one of the, the things that can shock, I think, and I am not considered a, a sort of old hand at this. You know, I'm, <laughs> I like to consider myself as certainly young at heart, if not necessarily quite as young as I was when I began, is that we, the student body, the undergraduate student body, are, are perpetually between the ages of 18 and 21. And that means their life experiences and their understanding of the world is very different from an MA student who might be in their 40s or 50s, a later life one. Um, so much of the 20th century was defined by the events of the First World War, not least the, the emergence of these two enormous ideas, American de- democratic capitalism and Soviet communism that we tend to take it for granted. I was course, born in the 20th century, as I'm sure many listeners were. And, and I grew up even as a child with the Cold War as a background piece. You know, one of my earliest childhood memories is actually the Romanian Revolution. So I, I sort of was aware of this even at a young age. But for the current undergraduates, uh, the, the, the current first years were born after 9-11, and they don't have any sort of cultural touchpoint or reference to the 20th century in the way that somebody who was born in it might do. And it's difficult in some ways for them to grasp how much the First World War changed the 20th century and directed it, um, the short 20th century, if you will, between 1940 and 89 and so on, is a concept to them which they can recognise historically, but they don't recognise culturally. And what complicates this is, and this is, I think, speaks to the social media part of the question, is the way that the current undergraduates gain a great deal of what I might term their historical base their base interests, their initial interests, their go-tos for information is very different from even 10 years ago. And this is in no ways meant to be pejorative or derogatory. It's simply an observation. So if you, when I was developing an interest in military history, my interest stemmed in in large part from three things. War movies, which had all been produced decades earlier. My favorite movie as a child was The Battle of the River Plate, that hoary old 1950s movie, which I still love war movies books um i had a set of of military history encyclopedias which just absolutely gripped me i'd look up random facts from them all the time and and in a way i suppose it's the the sort of the 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 analog equivalent of clicking through wikipedia pages and wargaming and this was wargaming of course uh, with soldiers toy soldiers and painting them you know recreating battles and so on as i got older um, and computer game technology became better i would play computer wargames too Whereas now our undergraduates are drawing their cultural history from different a, a different source so certainly the the um the current crop, very heavily influenced by video games, a lot of their first exposure to military history is through the the prism of playing military based games, games like Call of Duty and the Battlefield series that have fired their imaginations in the way that perhaps films fired an earlier generation and the way that they will go about picking up cultural touchstones for the war and and so on, is is very heavily influenced by YouTube and watching short clips, watching short videos and so on, which means, in my experience, the undergraduates have got quite a broad knowledge of the First World War, but what they they lack is a cultural depth. To to them, it's a very distant event that's viewed through a prism. that's completely different, I think, to somebody who was born in the 20th century. And it's interesting. It poses interesting challenges about... The, the nature of cultural memory and how that shapes generations, the nature of international memory, because, of course, the joy of YouTube is you can watch presentations from uh, not merely your, your own language, but of course, other languages through the, the benefits of um, auto translation and so on. And so the students have got a very, very broad knowledge without necessarily the the, the, the cultural depth, the cultural touchstone uh, that, that w- would have been in existence even 10 or, or 20 years ago. They're also, I would say, extremely questioning, which I think is a wonderful trait. They, they, they will check information. They just that they are hungry for this information. They, they're they're desperate to it to acquire it. The hardest point, though, is is establishing, and this takes quite a lot of time, establishing that the mindset of a hundred years ago was so different to the mindset now, and that doesn't mean it's bad because one thing I think one students can sometimes suffer from. Is an idea that we have reached a pinnacle of intellectual and moral superiority in our own age, and you know all ages can suffer from this, and they tend to look back on older older periods as that um, you know, they're dismissed as periods of racism and, and so on. But one of the things I like to offer to the students is: Do you think you are genetically any different to the man or the woman of 1914? And then they start to think about it and say, No, you know, not. We are the same humans. It's just we think differently. Why do we think differently? What is their cultural background? And I think it's really important, I try and incorporate this into my own teaching, to to include a lot of cultural study so that the students can start to see the First World War within its own era, just to understand that. Because if they can understand that, then they can understand how it reshaped everything that followed and it, it hung over the 20th century. It's an interesting interesting challenge and it's one that i would say philip has developed as well so when i started teaching you had students who'd been born in the 1990s and they had a a much closer sort of cultural link to the first world war now you've got students who were born in the early and mid-noughties and though a lot of them remember the or interest in the first world War centenary indeed a lot would have their interest in the the period really fired by that their their cultural knowledge of it is different it's it is a very distant event to them whereas when i was growing up there were still first world war veterans alive and it was something that you were sort of aware of now of course they're all long gone and it does create a very different approach so i think it's fascinating i think there's there's probably articles to be written about this but i may not be the
0: person to write them i have to say Mm uh spencer your book focuses on the british army on the western front um it's an army that included formations from the empire in its order of battle, can you give listeners a brief explanation of this British Empire Army in 1917? Absolutely. This is... because I think it's slightly unusual.
1: It is, and I think this is it's it's different too from the, the Second World War, where there's another Empire Army, and I think it's well worth a little bit of a dive onto this subject. So one th- one thing, and again, this is something that the students often find a little bit. Not shocking, perhaps, but surprising and and takes a little bit of cultural consideration is that the British Empire in the early years of the 20th century was was a psychological entity in many respects, as well as a physical entity. It wasn't merely that it had dominion over a large portion of the world, but there was a psychological element to the British Empire. And this was created largely because certainly in the English-speaking parts of the empire, the dominions of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, to a lesser extent, South Africa, the the English-speaking diaspora still were first and second, some third generation immigrants who'd come from Britain. In fact, in the later Edwardian period, before the First World War, Britain's population, it was actually a net exporter of people, if you will. There were more people leaving Britain for to seek lives in the empire than there was immigration coming in. And this meant that there was a, a, a much greater psychological sense of being part of the empire, not merely part of a nation. Now, we can extend, we have to be a little bit careful of this because the Empire, of course, was multinational, multicultural, vast, and and different parts of the empire were somewhat different. But it meant that in, in terms of military force, we can be a little bit lured in when we use the term British Army. Now, of course, that was the term, but it implies more than this. It implies an imperial force because Britain and the British Empire were psychologically largely the same. When one spoke of Britain in 1914, one also spoke of the wider empire. One of the interesting things about 1914 is that the relative lack of development of the empire as a a single cohesive military force. From the Boer War of 1899 to 1902 onwards, Britain had in its mind that in the event of a major war, the empire would contribute troops and the example for this was the volunteerism in the boer war where canadian australian and new zealand contingents very gladly come forward and it served in many cases with distinction but british efforts to try and turn this into a formal system and guarantee some form of imperial military commitment in the event of a war in the edwardian period were, were I wouldn't say they were unsuccessful, because they were successful in the sense that, that the principle was established, links were forged, training was improved, there were certain levels of commitment made, notably Canada, to send troops. But it was, of course, nobody knows in 1912 the war is going to break out in 1914. So it did not develop as far as its greatest supporters would wish. But it meant that the army that does go to war by, by as early as 1914, within just weeks of the, um, the war breaking out, has, is, is a very obviously imperial army. The first imperial contingent that arrives is the Indian Expeditionary Force, the first of many Indian Expeditionary Forces which joins the British Army. In October 1914, fights with distinction in that year. Then the Canadians join. Subsequently, um, from 1916 onwards, you have the Australians and New Zealand New Zealanders, South Africans, but not merely the fighting forces. You also have uh, labour pools drawn from the Empire: the African Labour Corps, the Egyptian uh, Labour Corps, the Chinese Labour Corps. Though China not formally part of the Empire, of course, it's it's heavily involved with the Empire and sends over tens of thousands of labourers. The army, too, is fed, equipped, and prepared by the empire. You have bullets that have been manufactured in India. You have artillery shells manufactured in Canada. You have uh, meat that is being provided from Australia. You have trucks driving with tire, rubber tires. The, the rubbers come from Southeast Asia. It is a, an imperial effort. And the way the army is constituted by 1917 is, now has very distinct imperial components. By 1917, most of the Indian troops have been redeployed to the Middle East, some Indian cavalry remains, and you have the Canadian Corps, so a full-strength Corps, you have the Anzac Corps, and you have the South African uh, Brigade, not to mention the labouring forces. What's interesting by 17 is that the dreams of the pre-war planners who hoped for an imperial army to be created are actually starting to become a reality by 1917, but perhaps not in the way they anticipated. You have a dedicated Canadian and ANZAC cause, but with those organisations comes a new degree of political power for them. They operate as homogenous units, and they have the right of appeal to their own governments in the event of feeling that they're being hard done by or they're being poorly treated. They're starting to become proto-national armies, And that's a process which, of course, will become much more apparent in the Second World War. But in 1917, that is quite a a remarkable political change from a period in 1914 when it's thought that the Empire will contribute lots of troops and they'll just be subsumed into the British Army. Now you have two distinct, highly effective core that are operating as miniature national armies and their effectiveness of course is also crucial for the development of national identity one of the fascinating things is that canadian and australian national identity are so strongly rooted in the first world war but from very different experiences the australian national um, experience is defined by gallipoli hence anzac day in australia whereas the canadian military national experience is defined by vimy ridge in april 1917 one a disaster and the are um landing at Gallipoli, and the other, uh, a resounding triumph at Vimy Ridge. And <clears throat> you have these very, very differing um, mental images of the First World War from these armies. But the idea of proto-national armies can be taken a little bit too far, I think, because these were still... Formations within a wider British army. They were still equipped by the British. They were still trained along British lines. Though they might be officered by Australians and uh, Canadians, they were also subject to British regulations. To, or to an extent, of course, the Australians um, had were not subject to executions after scandals, at the scandal of Breaker Morant in the Boer War. But otherwise, they were still pro-national armies, equipped, trained and fighting in very uh, recognizable British style. And so when we talk of the British army in the the Western Front, we are talking of a a British Empire army. We are talking of tens of thousands of Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, and indeed South Africans, uh, fighting on this front too. So the empire element of the army is really, really is strong on the Western Front. It, you could argue it's even stronger, of course, in the Middle East. We have a very strong Indian contingent, as well as Australians and British soldiers. But I, it's it's important to remember when we see the term British Army in relation to the First World War, we are talking a British Empire army, no matter where it's setting its foot.
0: Super. Um, I want to talk about a specific threat that I found emerging from the book and several chapters and the key thread running through those chapters is the learning curve hypothesis in the changing direction of war making can you just explain this hypothesis
1: absolutely so this this hypothesis as a concept actually began with uh, professor peter simkins who's perhaps best known as the author of Kitchener's Army, which is the, still the definitive study of the, um, the volunteer divisions formed by the British in 1914, 15, and into 16. And Pete Simkins, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, came up with the concept of a learning curve to explain, or to provide, I should say, a new prism by which people might study the British Army. And it it was a counter, it was simultaneously, it was a counterblast to the lions led by donkeys concept. And it was an expansion of ideas that John Terrain and some other historians, notably Anthony Farrah Hockley, had been developing uh, through the 60s, 70s and into the 80s. And it was a, the, the idea that although the British Army's Nadia could well be seen as the 1st of July 1916, in the... um just over two years that followed ending in november 1918 the army changed and became a highly effective well-equipped well-trained tactically astute fighting force and that allied victory in 1918 could not simply be explained by the fact that germany collapsed instead germany was defeated and it was defeated by an allied war effort in which the british army played a very significant perhaps even decisive battlefield part so pete simpkins idea was that how what has happened? What is, how do we go from July 1st of July 1916 to um, uh, the 11th of November 1918? What happens to the army? And he came up with a wonderful shorthand, which was there is a learning curve that the army learns from its experiences. It tries to absorb new lessons. It tries to adapt and change. And ultimately, it changes faster and more effectively than the German army can. It ultimately starts to outstrip the German army in all forms of innovation by late 1918 and overwhelms it on the battlefield, uh, particularly during the Hundred Days campaign between August and November 1918. And the learning curve concept has be- been much discussed and has become uh, almost the starting point for for so much First World War scholarship. It's a, it's a wonderful idea to grapple with. Now, when Peter Simkins proposed it, and I know this because I've spoken to him about it many times, he didn't mean the idea of a curve to be taken literally. And of course, some authors have taken it literally and assume there is a, a very consistent, smooth process, and it's led to other people developing newer ideas. One of my uh, students, who unfortunately uh, has now sadly passed away, uh, Colin Hardy who wrote a, a very fine book called The Reconographers about the tank reconnaissance officers. He came up with a concept and illustrated, in fact, which was learning helix. And he believed the only way to, to apply learning was to view it in a helix form with many different planes interacting with one another at different times. Others have talked about a learning process now to try and get away from the image of a smooth curve. But Peter never intended it to be taken literally. And, and I actually think it's a little bit of a straw man to start disassembling the exact word curve but what's crucial is it provided this prism and it it challenged historians to look at the the development of the army in a different way how does an army learn and that in itself is a different question to how does an army become effective on the battlefield learning will translate to effectiveness one hopes but it's also a process in itself so how do you derive battlefield lessons how do you determine what is useful and discard what is not how do you provide equipment to respond to battlefield needs how do your tactics change how do your approaches change and it's it's such an unbelievably rich subject that can be examined at an extraordinarily low tactical level right up to the higher strategic levels as well it invites us to consider the question in uh, multiple dimensions the air the ground armoured warfare, artillery warfare, chemical warfare, underground warfare, logistical considerations, all aspects of the the British Army's experience, battlefield experience, can be looked at through the prism of how does it develop, and it provides a tremendously rich and, in some ways, an inexhaustible route for study. It's It's a fantastic concept, and it's also, of course, a useful one that, is, that can be applied to, to other armies, too. There's been work done on the French army's learning curve, the German army's learning curve, the American army's learning curve. And then you can start to compare them as well. There has been there was a little... One can sometimes be drawn into who learns faster or who learns better. That's not really the point. The point is studying how an army develops. Where does its ideas come from? How does it apply them? What does it take that... That last what's it lose in the process it's it's a, a terrific concept and it's one that has, has launched so many useful studies including a number of course um within the book i might make the claim that i think the learning curve within academic military history is now all, almost completely accepted what we are, are now doing is using that prism to examine that the question in many different ways such as what, what was inter-allied learning like what did the french learn from the british the, the Americans learn from the French and, and so on. How does it compare in terms of um, the Allies against Germany? Can we dr- come up with a concept of the learning race? Is one side learning faster than the other, adapting faster than the other? And so I think it's a, a really, really useful piece. And um, it, it's all the books I've edited on the, in the series have got this concept within them, that the idea that the army is changing. And um, I like to think that if you were to go back and read the 1915 volume when the army is at a in many ways, in a very poor state, up to seventeen, that the the learning curve become very apparent. It will be in your mind to think I can see how this is developing, and and the questions that are being asked of the army in nineteen seventeen are very different to the questions of nineteen fifteen. So it's a, it's a really wonderful tool. It's like putting the, the aspects of the war under a, a series of lenses and looking at them in the different ways and, and producing really interesting answers.
0: Yeah, I found in my research, obviously. I was looking at the German army, and I've looked at the German army and how it developed from the colonial wars in the 1880s right the way up till 1945. And I would say the two things the, the Germans seem to go through are uh, learning to lose, which uh, they certainly do from 1942 onwards and seem to cope with it quite well, and, um, and yet still stay in the fight. Um, they incorporate losing, they defend in depth, and they still go through that same process. The other one, which, of course, is the most um, harder to come to for people to read about is um, learning to kill. Um, in, in the book that I was recently finished, was I take the, the reader alongside the German soldier and how they're killing, and that's hard. I, I, I've discovered subsequently that that's a bit hard work. I guess with the First World War, if you do that, uh, it, it can be quite brutal, I would suspect. So I'm going to take you to that subject now. Mm. <laughs> um, there appears to be a duality in the book. Uh, I was struck by the prominence of the gays, as in Michel Foucault's Concepts of Power and Social Order. Um, the gaze from the soldiers themselves looking on the shattered landscapes, uh, confronting cultural change and their response to extreme power structures of war. And then the book, as a counter gaze with historian, historians gazing on 1917, delving into the issues behind the planning and decisions and battle outcomes and raiding and so forth. And it struck me that I should ask you the question then, Spencer, when you gaze on the Great War, what do you see? I, I think that's this a question
1: that could be the subject of a whole series of books. It really could. I think it's a fantastic question, and I'm going to give you a, a typical sort of historian's answer. I'd like to actually go back and talk about when, when I first moved into academic history. It was very much the the fashion this is the late noughties into the the early tens it was very much the fashion that everything had had to be analyzed through the the lens of systems that was the, the way that you separated yourself as a military historian from uh, what might be called a, a generalist or a popular military historian. You had to analyze the, the things through systems and so forth. And so I was i was very heavily um, tutored on the, the concept of the gaze and systems of power and so on. And it's difficult to escape that because it's ultimately a fascinating and, and useful concept. It spreads it, it a framework that makes what can otherwise seem chaotic and, and inexplicable. Explicable. It's it's a useful it's a useful handrail for you to hold as you study. But the more one studies, particularly war, the more one studies it, the more one realizes that the, the sheer scale of the experience, what we might even term the totality of the experience, means that sometimes Holding on to this the system, systemic interpretation is a little bit like riding a bicycle with stabilizers or training wheels on. It's comforting. It gives us a, a sense of stability and security. But it also can sometimes perhaps lead us into the idea of providing very easy solutions and, and very easy um, analyses. Going right back to Lenin's idea that the, the war was capitalist and, and therefore it was easily explicable. When I gaze on the first World war, and I've gazed on it now, you know, very essentially, as my job for over a decade. Is I'm just struck by the complexity of it, the the depth of it, the scale of it, the the sense that this was rather like an asteroid hitting the Earth and. Completely reordering, um, particularly Europe most prominently, but with with effects that stretched into the Middle East and into Africa and into Asia as well. And just as the the asteroid that that ended the 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 reign of the dinosaurs it took a long time for its full effects to be felt, to be felt, and this wasn't a, a sort of immediate overnight extinction. We, we see an ex- it's an extinction level event for an older form, you know, particularly of European government. that and it is unprecedented that the closest precedent. I believe to the the reshaping of Europe after the First World War is probably the Thirty Years' Wars, and that that of course was three hundred years earlier. You could even perhaps even go back further and say it's the end of the Roman, the Western Roman Empire in the four hundreds and five hundreds, because suddenly the European order of politics is completely upended. Borders are we withdrawn are redrawn. Three great European empires cease to exist: uh, the Austro-Hungarian, the Russian, and the German not to mention the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East and, of course, part of Europe. And, and this has simply not happened in, in European living memory. And so it's this huge cataclysmic event that is going to totally reorder politics, society, and the expectations of the population. And it's easy to be drawn into that. It's easy to be drawn into the that the, the, the high-level powers, because, of course, these have such an outsized effect. And who couldn't be fascinated by the consequences? But then this is where I think the first rule is so endlessly fascinating you can drive, dive right down and study individual soldiers individual soldiers individual family members individual children who've left records and so on i was struck recently by a twitter thread that was produced about the the sad fate of German, the German immigrant community in Britain in the First World War, who perhaps 25,000 strong in 1914, found themselves treated with immense hostility and suspicion, subject to internment, their businesses destroyed, their livelihoods ruined, and, and their lives fundamentally altered. And, and this is a history that is almost unknown in Britain. Uh, you might see the odd comment about German. Shop windows being smashed, but fundamentally altered um, this entire community's life and outlook, and and so the, the 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 scale of it is so huge. From from the very height to to the lowest, you know, the the most humble worker in a factory having their life changed and, and upended, and their attitudes changed. And this is where I think perhaps hesitate to say this but i'm going to say it anyway we're in a safe space on this podcast we can be drawn too much into the idea of systems and we it's comforting it's an easy way for us to follow it it's a digestible way for us to follow it because we can say well these these um the structures of power therefore shape the class experience they shape the gender experience they shape the racial experience and it's very useful as a starting point to study this but the more i studied the first world war the more i realized that individual reactions to it were as varied as individual reactions to anything, from those who genuinely enjoyed the First World War, who saw it as the, the highlight of their lives, to those who had their lives utterly ruined uh, by it. And these, of course, are just the survivors, not not those who were killed or, or wounded in any way. People whose outlook on life altered forever, whose um, circumstances improved greatly because of the war. And and the interpretations and responses to the wars are, are as varied as, as we can possibly imagine a kaleidoscope of approaches and and we've moved beyond the idea of um class groups as as a sort of herd uh, who act in each of interests we know there was tremendous inter-class problems for example just in britain british labor relations were enormous particularly in 1916-17 and so we, we we can be drawn to those too and so what I see with, with the First World War now is is just this astonishing kaleidoscope. I like to, in fact, draw the metaphor that studying the First World War is like looking at the most fascinating cell sample in science you can think of, and you've got this terrific range of microscopes you can apply to it. You know, you can look at it in a very broad sense, you can drill down to a very low sense, you can look at something in between. And it is a lifetime's work it will never be completed there will always be something new to look at the challenge therefore is how do we interpret the first world war in a way that is simultaneously academically accurate we've researched it as much as we can we've got as close to the truth as we think we can it simultaneously is accessible so that it is not a 8 million page volume trying to cover everything which is going to require us to use some system, uh, ideas of systems and, and uh, to apply them and yet it also does not completely expunge the concept of the individual because the more I've studied the First World War, particularly at command, uh, at strategic and command level, the more I'm struck by the importance of individuals and in individual personalities in my own chapter in The Darkest Year I, I reflect on the fact that David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of Britain And William Robertson, the chief of the imperial general staff, could not get on with one another. And this was not necessarily because of any intrinsic difference in outlook. In fact, their strategic outlook was quite similar. But on on a personal level, they disliked each other. Lloyd George is very outward, uh, very outgoing, very enthusiastic rather morally loose, it has to be said. You know, never had a a problem seducing other men's wives and uh, never had a problem accepting money from questionable sources, but radiated this sort of energy um, like like to be the life and soul of the party. Uh, Running into William Robertson, who was nicknamed the Refrigerator because he was immovable, uh, this vast physical presence and a vast intellect as well. But he was priggish. He was in some ways old-fashioned. He was much more morally upstanding than Lloyd George. Um, but crucially, he found Lloyd George irritating. He, he did not like George, Lloyd George's effervescence, whereas Lloyd George found William Robertson's rather cold and, and stolid exterior frustrating. And the fact that these two men developed a personal dislike of each other would have profound effects on British strategy in 1917. And, and if we don't acknowledge that and we don't study that, then I don't think we fully understand strategy. I've laboured that point a little bit to just illustrate that these individual relationships can have huge effects on the First World War. And, And that's what makes it so fascinating. It can be studied in so many ways with so many prisms. And somebody once asked me, this was actually at the end of the centenary period in 2018. They said, aren't you bored of the First World War? And I said, absolutely, not. I barely scratched the surface of it. And if we think about, it, we have over 100 years of analysis and historiography, and there's still so much more to be said. So when I see the First World War, I see an experiment underneath the microscope, and there is an almost an infinite variety of lenses that can be applied to it. And who knows what we might find in the next 10, 20, 30, uh, 30 years, and,
0: and more beyond. <laughs> That's a superb response I, I'd, I'd like now to move to a, the larger canvas if we can um, looking at the the first world war in British and uh, global history and um, one thing I'd like to go to is politics of violence which obviously is pretty much my bag so uh, and, and my question is we assume World War two was a more violent war but the intensification of violence by 1917 comes across from your book can you explain why this intensity and, and and the thing that I would point to is that brutal hand-to-hand trench and tunnel fights and and the nature of the war and I'm thinking of when I went to the Imperial War Museum and you see these um, trench tools like daggers with knuckle dusters and all that stuff it, it, it strikes me that the war has gone from being barbed wire, machine guns, cavalry and guys running around to this kind of brutal struggle like a uh, an inhuman wrestling match between two two peoples. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I think this is a really
1: interesting subject and I think it's actually one that is wide open for deeper research. It speaks a little bit to the question we've just been discussing about systems analysis. So it's become very fa- very fashionable uh, in certain branches of history, to see the level of European violence in the First World War as somehow connected to the violence of armies during colonial campaigns, I'm myself I can see there's some there's some interesting ideas there, but I I, I don't really agree with the the central thrust that you can explain the violence of say 1917 uh, by reference to, to colonial experience because the, the soldiers of 1917 are what's interesting. These are soldiers who are. Uh, substantial numbers of them are wartime soldiers. In the British Army, that means there's a very high proportion of volunteers alongside conscripts. And their experience of violence as individuals is not in, in inherently rooted in a colonial experience. Very few of them will have actually had any experience of violence there. And I, I don't necessarily follow the idea that they've been drawn in by the idea of uh, violence in colonial campaigns as portrayed through newspapers and books. If anything, those ideas have probably generated something of a romantic image of warfare that we find some reference to in 1914 and 1915 the idea of heroic last stands of death or glory and so on by 1917 as you rightly say this is is being replaced by a sort of grim stoicism and it finds expression uh, as you say in in the brutality of trench raiding now tony ashworth's in many ways seminal book about the live and let live and let live system in trench raids and the First World War, he published this in the 1980s, had made the point that trench raiding itself, uh, there's, there's a sort of duality here that some units didn't like to raid, they did not like close combat, they did not enjoy it, and they, they would do everything in their power to try and avoid it, in fact. Uh, but also I had to acknowledge that some units became very keen on it and became specialised uh, as raiders. And what we see, of course, in the chaps are dealing with trench raiding, very close combat, is in 1917 it's become much more of an organized form of battle and this is is war on, a, on a, a brutal level the where has it come from i think that there's two origins for this one is the re-intensification of national effort in 1917 which is true of all the combatant powers william philpott characterized this helpfully i think as remobilization there's a possible possibility the war will end at the end of 1916 germany has as has, has taken a, a tremendous amount of punishment on all fronts. Its fronts have held, but they've been wobbled. And there's a possibility at the end of 16 that there could be a compromised peace. It's a it's a faint one, but it's probably the most likely point up until 1918. But instead, the Germans, uh, the Kaiser's government decides it's going to redouble its efforts. It's going to um, introduce the Hindenburg program of mass industrial mobilization. It's going to re- introduce forced labor from the occupied territories. It's going to do everything in its power to win. And the Allies have to match that level of escalation too. And there's an expectation in in 16, I think, that the war might end by the end of the year. There's very little expectation of that in 1917. Instead, there's an expectation this is going to be a long, grueling, violent battle, uh, violent campaign. I think, too, for the British experience, the volunteer army of of the 1st of July 1916 is gone. It's gone both physically, because of the casualties it suffered at the Battle of the Somme, and psychologically, it's no longer the same. These are men who've gone through an astonishingly violent campaign at the Battle of the Somme. And their outlook on war in early 1917 is different. Any lingering romanticism about the nature of war, I think, has been shorn away. And on top of this, and this is something I'd love to do more research on, and, and perhaps a listener might be might pique an interest, is conscripts. Conscripts, of course, begin to fill out the British Army in in this nineteen sixteen to replace battle casualties, and their outlook on life and their outlook on violence has only just begin begun to be studied. Just a few of my MA students have begun to look at conscripts as a as a, an identity group within the British Army, and some of the early research has shown that. Um, one thing that conscription does is it brings in criminals, and that's not something that you might think of. But if you are, um, you know, a minor criminal in Britain, in the, particularly in London or one of the metropolitan areas, you're unlikely to be a volunteer unless you're running away from something. Why would you give up? Um, why would you give up your independence and uh, you know your potential wealth, relative in the working class community you're in, to go and serve in an army where you're going to be subject to rules and regulations? That's not very popular, and. You mentioned the trench weapons, and of course there's that grisly display in the Imperial War Museum of trench-raiding weapons. Knuckle dusters, knives, clubs, all kinds of things. The bladed knuckle duster is not uncommon in violent gangs in Britain in the pre-war period. And we know that these weapons are not officially approved. The British Army doesn't produce them. Officially, if you go into a trench raid, you'll take your revolver, your bayonet, and your rifle. You may take a club. As trench clubs are not uncommon, but as early as nineteen sixteen, we see people start to improvise weapons. The um, trench, uh, the trench club, becomes very popular. It's the most simple style: a length of wood with a spike in it or a weighted um, element on it. Um, the British sometimes know these as knobkerries. After the Zulu War, the Australians know them as pacifiers or peacemakers. And into nineteen seventeen, you start to see more and more advanced trench raiding weaponry. And what we've we, we've Learned from research is a lot of this is being manufactured in in the, the sort of the, the street gang workshops in London and is being brought out to the Western Front and then later it starts getting manufactured on the Western Front by people who know how to make this kind of stuff and in some ways it's a translation of Edwardian street violence into the circumstances of the Western Front. We can perhaps even take this a little bit further and again I'm speculating a little bit here because there's more research to be done, but. Some units that develop really fearsome reputations as raiders actually perform poorly in full-scale battle. It seems that raiding and and close-up violence, the nighttime attack, suits them better than the the more formalized actual battlefield performance. I'd also add something about, and of course this is much more your field than mine, but the attitude towards killing... And again, there's more work to be to be done on this. But the soldier of 1914, the British soldier of 1914, is often quite keen, keen may not be the correct word, is is quite willing to identify themselves as a killer, and this may link to the ideas of colonial violence and the promotion of um, killing as an act of of, of masculinity in that period. The volunteer of 15 and 16 is not so. We don't see this in quite the same way that these soldiers tend to see themselves as civilians in uniform and that their, their position as a soldier and, and therefore as potentially a killer is very a temporary one. By 1917, with it clear the war is going to be much longer, an attitude towards killing. Uh, rotates around again these people may not see themselves as, as, as permanent soldiers but they do recognize that that's what they're there to, they're there to do for the foreseeable future they are there to fight and they're there to kill and the attitude towards killing and violence certainly changes there's also of course this element of, of frustration and nihilism, which is inherent in any um, long campaign i think and, and in 1917 at its worst Results in in um, some significant violence against prisoners. Um, problems with trench raiding, whereby prisoners are meant to be taken and are and, and, and murdered en route. Uh, this happens both in the German and, and the British armies, of course. Um, and I think this idea of of killing owes something to the fact that they there is no end in sight in 1917. The war is simply going to go on social norms for the volunteers which they may have clung on to in 16 have gone. They have been subsumed into a, a, a different culture. We may call it a culture of violence. We may call it um, a culture of killing or a culture of, of soldiering if you wanted to be softer but that the, the psychological approach of the army is different. It has to be. You've either gone through 16 and you've experienced that the, the nature of war or you're a conscript who's been brought to the front and now you're exposed to this nature. And I think it's a subject that is ripe for more research. And um, I hope that a listener might be might have their ears prick up hearing that, and perhaps consider diving into it themselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I the thing I found when I was reading the the, the kind of the violent bits, um, it struck me that I was dealing with um, to a certain extent eighteen sixty four in the American Civil War when the hard fighting has really started to hit hard, um, nineteen forty four when the the Germans are are taking to a, a bitter form of fighting and the Allies are having to really pound them into the ground. Um, and even 1814 with, you know, the Napoleonic Wars, with those, those massive fights, um, it strikes me that these big wars, the ones that are, you know, long periods, you get to a point where there's a peak, where the violence of it has reached a, an extreme. Uh, and I noticed that with nine your nineteen seventeen period, the the, the, the the nature of the violence has, has heightened. I think perhaps from a from my perspective, I think a, a lot of academics and I think it's right that they they feel reluctant, there is a reluctance to go into this stuff. Um because it is ugly learning. I mean, you know, it's really hard and harsh. And the number of people who've said to me, you know, following your soldiers into into Polish forest is not exactly the most pleasant reads, and I can understand that. Um, Unfortunately, I think we, I think scholars will have to go there to really uh, comprehend the nature of of violence and the way it, the way develops and emerges. I I completely
1: agree, Uh, and if I could just excuse me, um, add another element to that. Excuse me, I've just got to get rid of a throat to there. Um, I do the relevant to that. The recent um, yeah, the publication of Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, in which he identifies himself as a killer, um, having killed, I believe, 25 Taliban. And the reaction to that was, was very interesting to me because I, I think back to... Um, the reaction to memoirs after the first world war where that there was a distinct line between soldiers who who wish to identify themselves as killers and those who wish to to rather skate over the idea or even not mention it at all you know you could go from extremes in some ways from frank crazy notorious the men i have killed which is a a shocking title and for a fairly shocking book it has to be said um to things like alfred Pollard's memoirs of a fire eater who is a man who is very keen to identify himself as a killer and is proud of himself um for for inflicting damage upon the enemy to other books which uh, you know, might think of edmund blunden's undertones of war in which the, the act of killing is is a tragedy no matter which side it occurs to and it's i agree with you completely philip and you've done a lot more work on this than i but it does take one into some quite unpleasant and dark places and um, I know I've done a little bit of work on trench raiding and uh, the language what struck me was the language of, of trench raiders particularly in, in contemporary periods so this is letters Home or, or some of them may have kept diaries not so many did but letters Home is they adopt the language of the street gang and they talk about things like scuttling somebody uh, which was a common phrase in the north of England for, for inflicting um, yeah, a fatal wound on somebody uh, giving someone a smile which means of course cutting someone's throat and that these, this is actually street gang language it's not military language it's street gang language and I, I'm interested in how it's unpleasant it's deeply unpleasant but it's um, it's a way that perhaps these soldiers process their own violence this is not necessarily dissimilar to some of the violence they may have experienced at, at home and now taken into a much more industrialized form and in some ways perhaps easier to carry out um, because the german opponent is seen as an other somebody who doesn't speak your language who doesn't share your culture and, and therefore it, it's easier to disconnect them as a, as a human but it's a grim subject it's it's certainly a grim subject and um you know it, it's it's one that i think is important to research especially in like as we Witness some of the horrors of the Russia Ukraine war, but it is a challenging one for anybody who delves into that. I'm sure you'd agree.
0: Yes. Um, I'd like us to move on a bit now into uh, academic history. And I, I'm going to take for, for this the context of Hughes Philpott, the um, modern military history book they wrote in 2006, and their concerns over the place of military history in academia. Um, the history of the war is undergoing a renaissance. Um, the great war I'm talking about, through scholarship. Do you think the study of war has now reached a general acceptability uh, within mainstream academic history?
1: Now, this is a it's a question that I, I've I've thought long and hard about myself. And they, they, I'm going to give a, a typical yes and no answer. Is it acceptable in mainstream academia? In my opinion, I don't think it is. Uh, I still think it is very much a black sheep within history departments. That comes from my own experience of seeing some of the hostility towards military history. And it's a a strange hostility. It's rooted in a number of misconceptions. The idea that military historians are, are somehow, I think, thrilled by the study of war or perhaps even titillated by it, which has no basis in, in modern reality whatsoever. As I just recent conversation about the, the difficulties of studying killing, I think emphasised. There's I think that's that. I think that there's an element as well that within history departments, resources are often strained and there can be a certain amount of, of fighting for resources which can, can lead to hostility. Um, I think there's also perhaps a cultural hangover. Now, when I was starting in history, people often linked this to the Vietnam War and said that the the cultural change in academia after the Vietnam War created a hostility to the study of military history, and I certainly believe that. Now, I think we see a hostility to military history coming from the prism of decolonialization and as a, a sort of exhibit A in that I would uh, say that the epitome of this is Kim Wagner's uh, 2018 article, Savage Warfare, uh, Violence and the Rule of Colonial Difference in Early British Counterinsurgency, published in uh, 2018. And Kim Wagner, a professor at, I believe, Queen Mary University and a specialist in British-ruled India, uh, wrote an article in which he he not merely uh, criticised the historical British approach to Colonial warfare, but actually criticized military historians as a broad group, uh, describing them potentially as weaponized historians. Who, in a way, he was trying to link the idea of studying military history to perpetuating models of imperial and colonial violence and this was an influential article in the wider historical community it did draw a response from military historians but just a little you can check this yourselves listeners if you checked the number of citations for kim wagner's 2018 article Against the number of citations for the response article, Wagner's piece had far more greater reach within academia than did the response. I, I think it's a, a a poor article in many ways, and I think it's an unfair article. Um, it's it's it, it is painting an entire historical branch with a, a rather unfair brush. Um, but I think that's actually quite representative of of a wider view in academia, and. Although there was a moment, I think, in 2016, the, the middle part of this the centenary of the First World War, when military history seemed to be on very strong footing in the UK, with, with a number of departments uh, doing well, with um, a major new journal being launched, the British Journal for Military History, and, and, and a sense that there was perhaps some forward momentum uh, with this. Uh, I'm afraid to say in 2023, I see much of that ground has been lost. I think military history has been has suffered due to the general turn against history, uh, observable in UK universities, a pivot towards STEM, and uh, a sort of reluctance to really back history departments. And I also think that military history has been an unwitting casualty of the, the historical culture wars, and that because empires were often propped up by the bayonets of the um, imperial power, the idea of studying um, military effectiveness or military performance is somehow um, supporting this idea, and, and I, I think Wagner's article and its popularity within in academic history captures something of that. So I, I don't, I don't really feel academic military history is on a particularly strong footing, and yet it exists, it endures. Um, there are some excellent military history departments out there, not only in Britain but in the wideringly speaking world that continue uh, some very good work. And it's significant to me that with the outbreak of the Russia Ukraine war, uh, suddenly those who were and I had some experience with this, those academics who are questioning the entire purpose of military history as a discipline suddenly are finding a reason to come and speak to military historians a lot more. Now that's a very negative answer, but but I'd like to put a counterpoint on this. This is the so I've just had the no, this is the yes. There's a certain dichotomy here, and that is that while academic military history is uh, on somewhat precarious footing, and there's always a sense you're fighting a rearguard in academic military history. What I call popular military history, I think, is at the height of its powers in some way. One only has to walk into a bookstore, Waterstones or Foils, and there is an entire, there's no longer merely a section military history. It's now subdivided by war. Whether you want to see Napoleon or you want to see Victorian or you want to see First World War or Second World War or Modern War, there's entire shelves dedicated to each war. Not merely booked, too, but if we look at the absolute explosion of popular history entertainments, we have the History Hit subscription channel, we have an almost bewildering number of YouTube channels that are producing, in many cases, terrific content with all the benefits of modern technology, miniature documentaries, recreations. You have history as entertainment, uh, of course, always uh, an interesting subject in itself, but in military history terms, as strong as ever. Things like Tankfest and Bovington attract huge audiences. Air shows continue to attract huge audiences. Podcasts. On military history are booming. Um, there is a, a huge flourishing and continuing flourishing of, of interest in military history, and in some ways, I think that makes the the difficult position of academic military history um, a little sadder. Uh, that the, 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 the links between the two branches, although they do exist, I think, um, uh, could be. Um, it could certainly be strengthened. So, is academic military history in a strong position? I, in my opinion, it's it's not. It's uh, it's it's there. That doesn't mean it's collapsing, but it's always under pressure, and and um, and that's unfortunate. But is military history as a whole? doing well i think it's doing fantastically well and um public interest is vast there's some great work being produced by what i might term popular historians and i don't mean that in a derogatory sense in the slightest that they're, they're writing for a different audience and um hence why i, I hope that that books like my darkest year can, can perhaps provide a bit of a bridge between the two and i, I do hope that others would, would be inspired to do the same
0: yeah i i'm I'm a big fan of Kim's work, so I, I'm 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 not going to go down that because that's another side. But taking taking the Philpot Hughes work further, do you think we need a new study of military history, or does that book still hold? I, I'm that's a really good question, and I
1: think that as a I think that it set the tone for the the next fifteen years. I wonder whether that there is a place for a a wider, a new definition of it, but I'm not really sure what we could add to pot and so forth. Because I think most of the prejudice against military history is is not because of how military history researches the topic or approaches it itself, but actually because of perceptions of it, and and I think that's a a real shame that 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 this is this exists, and I. when I've encountered occasionally historians who are very negative towards military history, I do try and point them towards Philpott's book and say that this is actually um, how it works. Uh, it's not, there's no sort of, or well, there shouldn't be in academic military history, a celebration of, of the violence. It's simply, it is, exists. It's One wouldn't accuse a Holocaust historian of, of in, in any ways, wishing to perpetuate it. Um, and I, I think it's unfair to, to criticize military historians for doing the same. I think too, but what we might say now is that the concept of military history is now even broader than it was in Philpott's um, 2006 study. That it, in fact it's it encompasses almost the totality of, of what may happen in in wartime, or indeed in peacetime. I mean, how armies and military. Um, Organizations function in peacetime. But just to go back to my comment about the prism and the lenses of the First World War, you know, study of, of the military history of the First World War inevitably must include a vast civilian element uh, and a societal element. And now we have a cultural element. I, I'm thinking about Mark Connolly uh, of uh, the University of Kent's really interesting work on film portrayals of the war. In the 1920s, which in itself is is a fascinating both technical concept and a cultural concept too. So, military history is so broad; it is not merely tanks, bayonets, guns, and and, and the violent aspects. It's it's so much more than that. And I think Philpot was was definition captures this, but I'm not really sure it's ever been fully absorbed. And um, you know, perhaps that's a feature of academia. It reminds me of the quote attributed to Henry Kissinger that I quote frequently which is the, um, why the arguments in academia so intense. It's because the stakes are so small, um, which is a slightly negative way of approaching, but there is actually a, a, grain, a grain of truth in this. And um, I, I do hope that with time, and I think actually with the, this is going to sound absolutely awful, and I don't want to sort of say, well, this is a positive in that sense, but with the U- Russia-Ukraine war, and suddenly a need to really study the war and actually say, well, you know, now we're talking about matters of national survival and they are real. This is not a historical question, this is a real question. It's ongoing now. that suddenly there is not merely an interest in military history but a need for it. And I hope it might mean that some some critics of the concept of military history might reconsider um its usefulness. And um I, I would say, I'd like to say that I think the military history community like it's like any community, it has its strengths and weaknesses. But by and large, it's a very welcoming uh, and open community, and um, and you know you can see this writ large on, on on the better parts of social media too.
0: Here's one for you. Richard Holmes used to say, "Take out the take out the military word and just be a historian." <laughs>
1: very very accurate and true. Completely true. In some ways, it's easier to say. Um in my case, I'm a historian of the First World War because it can cover so much um, rather than saying I'm a military historian. Yet my, my own specialty I do study how armies function. But is, I think Richard Holmes was, was absolutely hitting the nail squarely on the head there.
0: So I'd like to move on to media again. Um, thinking about media and how to shape public opinion of the war. Uh, and I'm going back here to things like the film Oh, What a Lovely War and that a uh, wonderful comedy series. I'm going to get the wonderful in, comedy series Blackadder. Have the myths and legends of the war, you know, the mud, the blood, and the sacrifice, now been reversed by the kind of quality of the research that your book and others are doing?
1: Oh, well, now, that is a question. Goodness, goodness me. I, I, I like. I can see that being written as an essay question with the word discuss underneath. <laughs> so that's a real, real challenger. My My own view is yes it has started to change this but slowly and this is i know that some some of my colleagues in um, first world war history were disappointed by the centenary period and and were perhaps hoping there was going to be a not uh, you've heard of the phrase a revolution in military affairs I think there was some hope that there would be a revolution in how the First World War would be seen during the centenary uh, and it didn't happen of course that's because it, as you and I both know developing historical memory takes a long time it takes a really really long time I think that it's moving in an interesting direction I think it's moving in an interesting direction for several reasons one at an educational level the the idea of a learning curve has replaced the ideas of lions led by donkeys, and how do I know this? I know this because I do a lot of work with secondary schools who are teaching the First World War in their curriculum, and and this is now it's heavily ingrained in the in the um the education. We've moved beyond chateau generals and so on. Um, that doesn't mean, of course, that things like oh, what a lovely war, and, and Blackadder goes forth aren't on one hand interesting teaching tools, and secondly, in Blackadder's case, brilliant comedy, absolutely brilliant comedy, the the, the quintessence excuse me the quintessential British historical comedy in some ways um but those who are sort of drawing their history from this are, I like to think have now got really interesting alternative views and it's not just in schools we also see some some other crossover works uh, and I'd like to mention Nick Lloyd's The Western Front which is an interesting I think work that bridges academia and um popular history you a really good um, hefty single volume and um I know some academics actually criticised it a little bit and said, well, it's not really taking into anything new, but I think they completely missed the point of this book. It's It's... It is, t- it is a really well-researched, well-written, well-organised book, but it's also br- crossing that bridge. So you can learn interesting things about so French and German command that might not be immediately obvious to you as an academic, but it's also a, a new history designed for a wide readership, and, and I hope that it was widely read, because it, it is in some ways a, the, a really good counterblast to uh, The Lions Led by Donkeys' idea. And yet, as you and I both know, uh, Philip, culture is a very, very malleable uh, beast and it changes and it moves. And the reaction, uh, the positive reaction in general to the uh, the recent Netflix film, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is, has received absolute plaudits uh, indeed from, from filmmakers and fans. Um, I've seen that film. I think it's a, a terrific piece of technical work, uh, but its portrayal of the war uh, it's is fascinating and it's a subject for discussion. In and of itself, but it, that the portrayal of the war is unremittingly awful, extremely gory, extremely violent, um, it, it, nihilistic, completely nihilistic. And other certainly that chimes with the the spirit of the book, if not necessarily the, the exact nature of the book. I think that for every move towards saying, well actually the war was a little more nuanced and complicated than this is always going to uh, encounter um, not opposition but other cultural influences in the forms of films and mass media and this is nothing new I'm reminded of Mark Connolly's terrific work on films of the 1920s pre All Quiet on the Western Front where British filmmakers were portraying the war in different ways, were exploring the nature of action, were exploring the nature of, of storytelling of course, in the silent films, and it was interesting in the nineteen twenties. And I'm drawing, I'm stealing completely from Mark's work here that the portrayal of the war in film was very different to the portrayal of the war in literature because even in the 20s, there was a growing sense of disen, disenchantment literature, whereas the films of the era, which were, the far more people saw the films than read the books, the films were actually being, uh, portraying a different, a more heroic uh, view of the war, which was obviously of interest to the public. So have we, have we changed the, the nature of the debate? No, and I don't think it's going to change overnight, but I do like to think that um, anybody with an interest in the war, even if it's a a relatively passing interest, would now be able to see Blackadder or or, Oh, What a Lovely War and and enjoy the humour, but also think to themselves, ah, but there was a little bit more to it than that uh, as well. And, And I it's uh, it's a marathon not a sprint it's um it, it's going to take a long time and who's to say that um you know something might come along another big cultural phenomenon such as just as all quiet on the western front in nine, the 1930s the film was massively influential perhaps the, this new film will also be influential in our view uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue pursuing the history and uh, you know, we now have historians of the historiography of the First World War. It's a hundred years old, and it's gone through different forms, different periods, different ideas. Uh, that's another lens we can look at the history from. So I like to think that the debate is different now, and that it's moved on, and we can appreciate the the study of the war in a slightly different way. Um, but I think we're um, we we may not have um, we may never erase uh, General Melchett from the, uh, <laughs> the British public consciousness. But why would we want to? Because it is great stuff
0: okay well and, and my last question before we go through the wrap-up my last question is are there any lions and are there any donkeys or has that whole aphorism just disappeared now oh
1: that's that's a very good question um i i think that human nature draws us to the to the idea of lions uh, led by donkeys um it, it really really does the if we look at how war is described and is um is written about going right back to the iliad and and beyond we we are as as perhaps a a culture and a in the and a race we're drawn towards this idea of you know the larger than life character the the hero the 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 image of the the warrior general and the fact that the first world war the nature of the fighting basically removed the possibility of being a warrior general in the way that the, um, the western mind understood is always going to lead us into this idea of lines led by donkeys and that the image of a general stood at a table in a chateau miles behind the front line uh, moving flags around and the flags of course representing thousands of men's lives memorably of course captured in Blackadder where a um, character of General Hague is seen simply sweeping toy soldiers into a dustpan and brush is is a difficult one to escape because it's so rooted in Western culture to see the lion as somebody who's leading from the front, who is who's the big man who's making uh, the moves, and see somebody at the back who's pointing and telling people what to do as, as a, a culturally negative that I'm not sure will ever completely change um, this idea. Well, are there any lions? There certainly are. I think there's, um, there's some, you know, <laughs> the, the courage the tenacity, the determination of soldiers on all sides is is quite staggering, and that the conditions that soldiers on all sides are willing to endure uh, in this conflict are um, sometimes take the breath away, and they're the worst possible sense. Are there any donkeys? I'm afraid there are. There are men who are promoted beyond their level of command. There are men who make mistakes and learn nothing from them, just as there are in, in the current era. But to see the entire war through a prism of lions led by donkeys, well, I like to think we've disposed of that one from the microscope. But who knows? I may I may have spoken too soon, Philip.
0: Well, Spencer, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, as we wrap up this podcast, can I ask, when do you expect 1918 to be published? And will you come back and tell us how the war ended? That's a very
1: good question. Um, One little joke about this is every time I finish one of these edited books, because they are a lot of work, I always promise myself I'm not doing that again. That that was so much work. I'm going to do it differently next time. And of course, four volumes later with a fifth volume um, in the planning stages, uh, I've clearly not learned my lesson. My own learning curve has has bottomed out at some point, but I hope to have the 1918 volume uh, produced in sometime in 2024. Uh, The planning for it is already well underway. It's, um, there's some discussion about the size of the volume and what it will cover, but um, the 1918 volume will be produced. And I, I can say to the listeners as well that there's even some talk about a 1919 volume, but I can say I probably won't edit that one. That will be for somebody else. So, But do stay tuned, and I'll be delighted for, to come back and discuss 1918 when it's finally finally out.
0: Well, that's excellent. Thank you very much for agreeing to join me today and talking about your marvellous book and hope to see you again soon. Thank you very much, Philip.